When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. For this episode, uh, we are talking to Professor Christophe de Jong uh, about uh, a wonderful book called The Global Bourgeoisie, The Rise of the Middle Classes in the Age of Empire, published by Princeton University Press. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Christophe, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Dr. De Jong, you are a professor of modern history at the University of Bern in Switzerland. It's customary to start our podcast by introducing our guest. So maybe you could briefly tell us uh, what, uh, what what attracted you to history, uh, modern history, modern European history, and uh, how, how did you become a professor of uh, history at University of Bern? Yeah, well, actually, I, I started as a scholar in uh, European history, uh, European social and uh, cultural history. What attracted me to history was basically I don't know, to understand the world, to see how the world came about uh, as it was and maybe how one could change it. Um, well, I, I started the European history. I did my PhD uh, um, on, on a study of uh, gender and military history in the Second World War in Switzerland, which was a topic that nobody beyond Switzerland was interested in. So it was a bit difficult to communicate with, with, with scholars from, from other areas. And then I thought for my second book, I would be interested in to Switzerland uh, in the world. And I did a study on a Swiss uh, trading house, uh, Falkert Brothers, which was one of the biggest trading houses in South Asia and was interested among others about how these merchants communicated or interacted with Asian merchants, with Indian merchants. Uh, they were uh, very active in the raw cotton trade. So how did they buy cotton in India and and how, how did this work so and and this, this is what brought me then to global history and among others also to the, to the topic of this book um, and this book I should have actually mentioned it at the beginning the global bourgeoisie it's a collection of essays written by many academics and uh, you have contributed to this uh, you're one of the editors and you've also written an article which we'll talk about uh, so can you tell us how the idea of this book, this is the first, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first global history of middle classes. And I find it quite interesting because there are a lot of, the, you, you can actually go to a relevant continent or country and there is an article about the rise of middle classes in those uh, areas. So can you tell us how the idea of the book, how, how did it come about? Yeah, well, there, there, there is also an, another uh, um, edited volume uh, by uh, which, which has been published some years ago. So it's an, actually the first one, but 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 maybe the first one that really takes this global issue seriously and tries to frame the rise of the middle classes uh, in, in 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 global history. And I did this together with Jürgen Osterhammel and um, David Motadel. And well. The, the, there were there were two reasons. Well, the one the one was for my uh, second book, so about this interaction between Swiss uh, traders and Indian merchants. And when I started this book, I expected there were a lot of misunderstandings. So the Swiss were 
probably very rational and the Indians were somehow caught in these religious traditions and and, and whatever. So it was, was a very naive uh, expectation that I had. And actually this, this wasn't the case at all. So they had the no, no problem in understanding each other in dealing with other. They had the same sense of mercantile honor. And I was just thinking, okay, what, what is happening here? So why does this work? So, because this is somehow it seems that this class background seems to be able to uh, transgress the colonial divide between colonizers and, and colonizers. And actually, the Swiss, Swiss trading house was somehow not really part of the British Empire, but still within the framework of imperialism. So this was, was another thing. So I was thinking about this social aspect of imperialism. And the other reason was that there were a lot of books that had been published in the past 20 years, so by David Waitenpoe on uh, the Middle East, Margaret Pernow in India, uh, Sanjay Joshi on, on India, uh, how, um, Michael West on, on Africa, David Park on Latin America, all uh, dealing with middle classes in these respective areas and making the, the argument that there were middle classes in colonial Africa, in India, in China, in the, in the age of empire. And comparing these middle classes to the European middle classes and say, okay, they were similar enough to describe them with these terms, but none of them were, were, were comparing or making, uh, uh, relating these middle classes in Africa, for instance, to India, or well, these South, there were no South-South connections. And we thought, okay, it would be great to think, well, they more or less emerge all at the same time. What, what is happening here in the world? How is the 19th century also a century of the rise of the middle classes? And what does this mean for globalization and also for imperialism, which then we have to talk maybe also about the relation between class and imperial racism. So uh, you've just raised a number of fascinating uh, topics that I will get, I hope we'll get to talk about all of them. But let us start with the title, the global bourgeoisie, the rise of the middle classes in the age of empire. So uh, oftentimes the word bourgeoisie and middle classes are used interchangeably, but there is a distinction. You do make a distinction in the in the book. So, I'll, so to get started, maybe you can give us a definition of bourgeoisie and then middle classes. And one thing I liked about the book was that in, in the book, you when you define middle classes, you, you define them against two criteria. One is the, from a social perspective, the other one from a cultural perspective. So can you define these terms and tell us how you use these terms in your book? Do you, do you use them interchangeably or you keep uh, making the, a distinction between the two? Yeah, well, I not quite. I mean, basically, we, we are using them as, as synonyms. This is also the, 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 how it is done in the literature. I mean, there, there are in the uh, uh, in area studies, there is a tradition of writing about the bourgeoisie so in the 1980s, 1990s, a bit more probably from a Marxist perspective in the last few years, these same groups have been described as, as middle classes. Um, it depends a bit on the area, but but maybe I, I could start with saying something about this class at all, so bourgeoisie or middle class or bürgertum in, in Germany, because it's a very heterogeneous class and it was uh, very difficult also for uh, European social history to try to find a definition because they found, well, this is a class that, that ranks from railway magnets, bankers, merchants, to doctors, to la la uh, lawyers, to 
people with, with, with a very modest backgrounds, such as school teachers or uh, train drivers or, 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 or clerks. And what they found is what they, this united, this group was, was some kind of middle-class culture. So this, they were very much interested in progress, in education was, was very important, uh, uh, stable personality, development of personality, um, culture also, I mean, not all of these people obviously went to the opera. In Europe, probably they went, but in West Africa, actually not. But still, some are interested in arts, in literature, sending their children to piano lessons and all these things. And and what what, what European social history found that this was, was a definition that worked to somehow describe this group, which is not the arist aristocracy, and it's not manual labor, it's not working class. It's something in between that rises in the 19th century and has quite an influence on, on social developments. And this was a definition that also worked for non-European societies. There are some areas where, where, where there is a distinction. So most notably the Americas. There the bourgeoisie is really the Wirtschaftsbürgertum, the economic elite, which is the elite because there's no aristocratic elite. So this becomes the new elite. And the middle class is more people who have to work, white collar workers. And th there seems to be a much bigger alliance to the working classes than in Europe, because in Europe, the, the bourgeoisie middle classes, they see the working classes as the enemy, the threat. And they try to, uh, well, defend their position both against the aristocracy from uh, above and the working classes from below. So, so, so they're, they're, they're in every area, so these, these terms are used a bit uh, differently, but we basically use it as a synonym and say, well, this is this group. It's a very heterogeneous group, but you have tried to understand it and try to, well, well just also find, find out the, the difference because this is not just one bourgeoisie, which is very homogeneous across the world. Obviously not, but it's still there are similarities that uh, well se seems to justify to use the same term to point out uh, the differences in the second step uh, thank you and um, you also mentioned that uh, well the, the I guess it was more European boys was it like one of the criteria was the cultural aspect of it going to operas and theater uh, and I guess uh, you've also mentioned this British uh, historian in your book, E.M. E. Thompson. Uh, e. Thompson. Sorry, E.P. Thompson, yeah, who also wrote about the British middle class. So can you talk about that cultural aspect of, uh, of, of middle classes or bourgeoisie? What are some of those, let's say, customs or rituals that define them as middle class from a cultural perspective? Yeah. Well, E.P. Thompson actually was working on the English working class, but he had, had very much this performative uh, um, aspect, so, so, uh, so emphasized this performative aspect, so, so pointing out that the uh, uh, English working class was made by structural factors, but also made itself, so by, by uh, well, establishing uh, something like a class consciousness or a class culture. And this seems seemed very uh, fruitful for, for us. Um, well, how these, this middle class, well, 
thought about themselves and brought themselves in, into being. So, for instance, by, by, by learned societies, I mean, the, 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 there are several papers on uh, learned societies, philanthropic societies in the Middle East, in India. So people coming together, thinking about the world, thinking about their position in the world, about their, their area, their, their city in the world, how they would deal with global aspects, um, how they would deal with imperialism, with, with uh, European expansion from, let's say, from Lima or from uh, Aleppo or from Cairo and, and just think, okay, what should we do? How should we tie in with this modern world that comes into being? And, 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 and also, how should we uh, somehow reconcile local traditions with these European influences and try to find our path to, to, to the future. So, 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 so this, this is probably a, a common interest and, 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 and this is not something that happened in the wake of this happened in very precise social settings like uh, these societies or going to the theater and afterwards talking about the piece and things like that or, or, or writing in, in, in magazines or, or, or journals which was also a possibility for women to tie in because they, they, had, they had some problems because society, a lot of societies were close to them but they could establish uh, magazines and then write about how they would uh, be part of this this uh, emerging middle class world. Mm -hmm. uh, and with bourgeoisie, it's as you mentioned, it's not really a all homogeneous category. We also have another term uh, which you, uh, you have included in your book. We have bourgeoisie and we have uh, a petite bourgeoisie. Uh, so maybe you could uh, tell us how you define this. So what's the difference between petite bourgeoisie and bourgeoisie and also there were different middle classes i'll just use the term middle class now because it's easier <laughs> uh there were different middle class uh different strata of middle classes let's say uh sometimes they were in harmony with one another but there was also a lot of rivalry uh between them so uh, can you expand on that point please yeah, well, well, petty bourgeoisie is well. These are the people with the lowest income that somehow try to be part of this middle class world, such as shopkeepers or school teachers, but still are are, are also socially, geographically very. Um, living in neighborhood with working classes, trying to defend their position against the working classes. And, and, and of course, th th these are not, um, not containers. I mean, it's not just that you have one container, but the bourgeoisie and the middle class and then the, 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 the bourgeoisie. But social mobility was, was very important. I mean, this, this was a transforming uh, world. There was social mobility. Uh, there was urbanization all over the world. And of course, this, this offered new possibilities and also the possibility to rise from a working class background. If your daughter then went to a teacher's college, they could, she could become part of a lower middle class and, and somehow engage in political debates and maybe then I don't know, marry a doctor and then become part part, part of the bourgeoisie. So, 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 so this social mobility is very much part of this of this framework. Now you mentioned the, the, the rivalries. I mean, I mean the, the, this is obviously different in, in, in various areas, but the, but I mean there are tensions in terms of religious say. For instance, in Europe, there is the tension between the Jewish bourgeoisie, they want they want to become part of, of mainstream society of, of, of uh, the European bourgeoisie. And of course, the, 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 there's on the other hand, a, a lot of anti-Semitism, uh, 
some conservatives they do not want this 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 to come about. So, so so this is also something that happens to to to, to uh, qu quite some extent in within this middle class. So choose not being allowed to be part of certain societies or clubs. In the United States, for instance, there is, is, is the race question. So African-American middle class bourgeoisie that establishes itself um, in the second part of the 19th century aspires to be part of, of um, larger American society and also being denied entrance by, by white racism and then form their own um, uh, clubs or, 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 or societies and, and, and also economic uh, structures. And for instance, in India, there, there, there's the, the discrepancy between uh, Muslim middle classes and uh, the Hindu middle classes and also the political divide and also the fear of the Muslim middle class or the, or the Muslim uh, population in general to be to become a religious minority in a independent in uh, India, which would be Hindu dominated. So this is not 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 a harmonic world, but also all the uh, political and social and cultural tensions that characterize this 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 uh, period also characterizes the relation within the middle class. And obviously, there's also the tension between the white European middle class and the non-white colonial middle class. They do not see themselves on, 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 on the same level, but there is also this uh, imperial hierarchy between these different middle classes. And also the question which part uh, or, or, or which groups can be accepted as middle classes and which not. Yeah, uh, again, you raise a number of interesting issues. I'll pick up that uh, question of, uh, for example, middle class in India and how they were comparing themselves against the British middle class there. When you talked about America, I was reminded of an article I read some time ago, which talked about a famous massacre in Tulsa 1921, which was an, uh, about the blacks. So the black society was economically prosperous there so the racial tension was more intensified there because there was this burgeoning black middle class but the white people maybe were not doing so well and it was one of the causes of uh that horrible massacre uh let's uh talk about now that we discussed european and uh, middle uh, and middle classes in other parts of the world uh we generally tend to think of bourgeoisie or middle class as a european phenomenon but and, and non-European middle classes were maybe referred to as pseudo-bourgeoisie or let's say uh, maybe elites, but not really bourgeoisie. And even those non-Europeans were always aspiring to copy what your European bourgeoisie were doing, going to operas and theaters, the idea of getting a university education, teaching in a higher education institute. So is, is middle class or bourgeoisie, why is this perception wrong? Is it an exclusively European category? Or why is it that the non-Europeans, as you mentioned earlier, there were merchants in, in Shanghai, lawyers in, in Delhi. Uh, how come they are not really classified as bourgeoisie proper? That's an interesting question. Well, first, maybe one should say that they, they did not just copy the European middle class. They were not just a, a, a copycat, but they were very creatively adapting Western influences because this was, was, was an age of European expansion of imperialism. And of course, these non-European societies, they somehow had to deal with this. They saw, okay, some, something is happening. Europe is rising. So what can we learn from that? And how should we deal with this world? And they, they 
it seems that they were very creatively merging local traditions of social uh, organization of debate with these Western influences. So, 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 so I think this, this is important to um, sustain or emphasize the agency of these groups. These were not just passive, naive uh, people just saying, okay, let's become European, even though this was obviously uh, not, not, not possible as, as such in, 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 in the appeal world. Um, then you, well, why was this not recognized? Or why, was, why is there a difficulty to adapt this term middle class or bourgeoisie to these groups or why are there different uh, descriptions of, as such as elite? I think that there are several reasons. Well, one is that European social history was not aware of these, these things because mainstream history for, for until 20 years, of course, was just, well, uh, uh, European history and one was not really aware what was happening in, in, in the non-European world. So therefore European social histories, historians had no concept of how to globalize this term. They had no interest in it. For non-Western, I mean, I mean there, 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 there was also this, this problem of, well, how did this bourgeoisie middle class fit into the story of national independence. And there, there are some writers um, today from post-colonial studies before that, from such as Franz Fanon, who was basically saying, well, well these people were traitors. They were uh, um, betraying their local culture. They, 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 they were collaborating with, with, with the enemy. They were... Uh, adapting this European uh, custom. So basically it's, it's do not really fit into this, this story of national independence and emancipation. So that, therefore other terms such as elites, I think would, were used to say, well, they were not, these are really African elites. So and it's not just that there they, are, well, this European influenced uh, pseudo bourgeoisie and one does not really know. I mean, there, there is this term by Franz Fanon as a comprador bourgeoisie also in China. This was used to basically the compradors betraying or selling out the, 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 the homeland. And I would say this, the story is more complicated. So these were people that were much more intelligent just to be the, 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 the helping hands of the Europeans. They really tried to find a niche and find new ways of how to deal with this, uh, this, 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 this European dominated world. And uh, there, one thing about this, this global history of uh, middle class of bourgeoisie is that in the book you mentioned that the middle class was a product of dramatic transformation of social socialist structures and also division of labor and it wasn't something that was confined to Europe it was happening across the world so can you expand on this point what were some of these dramatic transformation of social structures that were changed there was the division of labor uh, migration can you uh, talk about that point well, maybe I can uh, point out two things. Well, once, one was imperialism, which was uh, obviously changing Asian and uh, um, uh, African societies in, in a dramatic way, um, which also brought these Western influences and brought these uh, uh, societies um, un, uh, under a lot, lot, lot of pressure. The other thing was uh, global capitalism, which also involved migration, forced migration, the, the, the slave trade, and 
there's probably also a relation between this global labor history and this uh, global history of the middle class because because what what but um, I mean when when you read the book by Sven Beckert so this uh, um, Empire of Cotton I mean one part is the labor labor question so who was working on the cotton fields slave and forced laborers and who was working in the factories in, in in Europe and how is this integrated but at the same time there is also an economic elite traders merchants who are, who are dealing with cotton and and th th this is the same system it's just just well different groups have different positions within the system but this is a globalized economy and also people become uh, very mobile. I mean, for, forced labor is also about uh, migration, but also these um, traders, but also bureaucrats, clerks, uh, technicians, uh, uh, scholars working on plantations and trying to find new ways in, in pest control. I mean, there were new opportunities, global opportunities in this in this. Uh, new world market which also influenced uh, social uh, ranking and, and and gave these groups uh, also new possibilities so, so for the middle class this, this, these were opportunities for the uh, uh, people uh, in, in manual labor this this this, this was obviously in, in a lot of cases a, a nightmare because they were forced to, to migrate not always voluntarily uh, so in a way there was this nascent idea of globalization movement of labor and capital and as you mentioned imperialism as well which was uh whose, whose let's say effect was more or less similar across the world in terms of the development of uh middle classes and, 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 and another thing maybe just to add this is something that happened as a consequence of, of, of these these approaches was urbanization i mean when you look at how cities grew in the 19th century and this is dramatic they were 10 20 fold i don't know how, how many inhabitants bombay had in uh, 1800 i don't know 20, 30,000, and, 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 and 100 years later, all, all of the cities had hundred thousands or, or millions of inhabitants. So this is something that happened in the 19th century and obviously also influenced uh, the, the emergence of these middle classes because this was mostly an urban phenomenon. And uh, about, again, another uh, wonderful part of the book is that when you talk about the unit of analysis in the book, you go beyond national borders and you make a very good point that even in the 18th century, sorry, the 19th century, when you, uh, uh, the, the, the era that you're, the scope of the uh, research that you're covering, sometimes the idea of a society didn't really exist. In some countries, the nations that didn't exist, that's why you go beyond those national borders. So you talk about transnational structures of uh, structures and, uh, and influences that created middle classes. I mean, uh the, the nation state in, in a lot of cases isn't the ideal uh, framework. So, so also in, in uh, European social history, I mean, in, in many cases, it's, it makes much more sense to look at certain areas or, or certain cities because, as you said, there, there's probably no such thing as an American nation, probably not, not even today. I mean, New York is very different from, from, from the American South so, and, and also in Germany. Uh, 
or, or in other Euro, Euro, European uh, nations. So it makes much more sense to look look at a certain area and see see what it's what it's happening there. This is one thing to descend to the nation state, and the other is obviously to look at global influences because none of these cities or areas or nations were just existing in a vacuum. They were part of a larger framework of global capitalism of imperial uh, imperialism or whatever also migration is obviously i mean 19th century was also a very mobile century and people were migrating in the 10,000s uh, between different different continents um, but at the same time i mean a lot of these global histories when you look at them what they're doing imperially they are again focusing on in many cases on certain very restricted areas or cities and just trying to find out, okay, how is Aleppo or Bombay or Liverpool or, or, or whatever being part of this, 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 uh, these, these global structures, how were they influenced and looking at certain networks, which are then again, very local. And, 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 and I think this, this, this is a very uh, pragmatic way of, of, of doing this saying, well, it's very difficult to, to write the history of the entire world. I mean, there are basically people like Chris Bailey or Jürgen Osterhammel or maybe also Sven Becker trying to do this, but but most studies, they are, they are, they are just very modest case studies. Mm. But within, with, within this notion that we have to understand globalization in order to understand these local case studies. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, you mentioned that... Uh, these middle classes across the world, I mean, non-European middle classes had their own agency. They they were not only uh, copying, merely copying the traditions or let's say rituals or values of European middle classes. Uh, and the idea of respectability was generally important to them. But one, one thing, uh, I, I, I don't think one thing changed, which was gender roles and middle classes. Uh, it, it, it's, the middle classes still sort of maintain those patriarchal ideals maybe is that is that the right assumption yes on on, on the one hand they, they they did i mean this traditional conventional ideas is is, is, is very uh relying on uh, on a um a dichotomy of, of gender roles so women being housewives and looking for the children also education of the children is very important somehow has to uh, make sure that children are taking piano lessons and all these things and male or the, the men are the breadwinners and 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 having economic uh, success i mean this this is obviously a very schematic uh, uh, a view which was not entirely true. I mean, at the same time, this uh, uh, middle-class culture, or whatever you call it, um, brought also new opportunities for women in terms of education, and and also they aspired for being part of this world to uh, go to university, to study medicine, to 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 uh, uh, earn their own uh, money. That there, there was also the uh, the, the women's movement in, in a lot, lot of countries, women were aspiring to to have to have political rights, and many of them were well. I mean, there, there was also a, a, a working class women's movement, but but a lot of lot, lot of these early feminists they came from the middle class, they were uh, educated, they published their own journals and and magazines, so they were also part of this emerging and tr- ever transforming. Uh, uh, 
middle class. So, 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 so at the same time, the, the very values that try to restrict them to their role also offer the possibilities to challenge these roles. Uh, and uh, the two important events that you discuss in the book, French Revolution and Industrial Revolution. So the, 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 as you mentioned earlier, globalism played an important role in the development of middle class. But what was particular about the French Revolution and Industrial Revolution and, and their aftermath, maybe, uh, and the effects on, on, on the rise of bourgeoisie? Yeah, I, I mean... This this is a very uh, well, well 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 established uh, thesis that the double revolution of the 18th century, uh, the uh, in terms of the economy, the industrial revolution, and the French revolution in terms of politics, shaped the 19th century. I mean, this this was one of the the the, the, the theses by uh, Eric Hobsbawm, uh, framed the 19th century, and also made for the emergence of the bourgeoisie because the this economic sphere uh, the, the, the new uh, industrial world gave the new opportunities new uh, possibilities to uh, rise uh, economically and get rich and this uh, political movements also well, allowed him to challenge the, the rule of the aristocracy in Europe now what is important for for our project just to challenge this notion that the rise of the middle class or, 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 or the bourgeoisie is just a diffusion of European values all over the world. So European is active and all the rest of the world is just responding. That also these two um, 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 developments also were influenced and shaped by global processes. I mean, the Industrial Revolution, there's new research by Maxim Berg or George Riello, who pointed out that the Industrial Revolution was a reaction of British industrialists who aimed for competing with the, the Indian textile industry. And the only way they could do this in terms of quality and, uh, and, and price was by me mechanical uh, production. And the French Revolution was among others, uh, consequence of the seven years wars of the financial problems of the French uh, uh, government, they had to rise taxes, this brought new unrest, and which at, at the end uh, uh, triggered the, 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 the French Revolution. So both of these revolutions were also part of global processes. And also Europe wasn't an isolated continent, but but as we know from new imperial history and post-colonial studies and all, all these things, were influenced by what was happening in the rest of the world. And, and so there, therefore, it's, it's, it's uh, an attempt to say, well, non-European middle classes were part of a global uh, process, but also the European middle classes were shaped by global processes in a very different way, but none of them was emerging in isolation. And, uh, and speaking of uh, global is uh, sorry. Speaking of colonization, so in countries like India, for example, there was this British middle class. There was also this burgeoning and growing Indian middle class. So when it comes to colonized countries, did the colonized middle classes ever try to challenge the dominance of their colonizer? Did they justify their domination or colonization when it came to other? classes of society. So what was the dynamics like in countries like India? I'm using that as an example, but in general, I mean, the, ex the experience of a colonized middle class and a colonizer middle class in, yeah. in a country. Yeah. Well, on, on the one hand, I mean, the earliest nationalists or uh, uh, societies that were uh, 
challenging to some extent uh, colonial rule came for the middle class, such as the Indian National Congress, which was basically Indian lawyers, but also in Africa, a lot of these uh, anti-colonial activists, they had been trained in missionary schools or had gone to university as also a lot of, of Indian uh, uh, activists such as Gandhi or Nehru ha had gone to London or Cambridge or Paris, studied there and then came back and, and had this knowledge about how, how, how this Western middle class and how this society worked from, from the inside. I mean, the, 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 this, this was one side of the story, so this challenge. On the other hand, there was also some cooperation in uh, anti-imperial uh, uh, circles. There were uh, at times non-European activists working together with British or French activists who were also challenging imperial rule. And there were other areas such as society were that there was some kind of cooperation between uh, intellectuals and scholars from India or also from Middle East or, or Latin America with European uh, so, so socialist cycles. So, so there were at the same time times there was um, um, conflict, but also cooperation and. It's, it's not just one story. It's very different stories running at the same time and also. Well, uh, uh, developing over time, and, and you can see this in India, but also in Africa, that a lot of these intellectuals were thinking more in terms of federal organization of empires, uh, such as the Negritude movement uh, for Africa, saying, okay, the French empire is all right, French culture is, is a very good thing, but African or uh, uh, Caribbean uh, countries they want to have a say in this and to be on the same level as as the French nation state, which did not really work out. And then there was this um, uh, radicalization. Then saying, okay, if this does not work out, we want to have national independence, which, which was something that happened in the 1920s and 1930s, and also came from this these very same groups. And there were also different generations, and the later ones more radical than than, than the former ones. Um, they, they, there's also let's talk about American middle classes as you mentioned it's the development of American middle class was a bit different maybe from, from Europe because there was no aristocracy in, 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 uh, in America where there was no monarchy in America so how and there were, there were bankers of course there were people who were into railroad industry and they made their money and they formed that burgeoning middle class in the in the United States in the 18th century. So what was it specific about the emergence of American middle class? Yeah, so maybe I just want to say one, one thing about, about uh, my, my position, because I'm, I'm talking here very generally about Africa <laughs> and India and, and America, so as if I were, were a specialist in all these areas. So obviously, I'm, I'm relying on a lot of uh, work of specialized uh, mm. uh, uh, scholars in these areas. So, so, so that therefore, I'm basically mm. just quoting what they have written, also what they have written in, in our book, just, just, just to make this very clear. <laughs> Uh, so, um, yeah, what, 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 what was typical? I, I think what, one thing was, was, was this lack of aristocracy and the bourgeoisie become the new elite, so all these uh, Rockefellers and, and now, however, they, they, they were called. And the other thing was the, the, the race question. I mean, so, so, so this Afro-American middle class who 
is emerging. Uh, you, you mentioned Tulsa, so the Black Wall Street there, but there are also people like uh, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who obviously was a bourgeois. I mean, he, he, he was trained in, in Harvard and, and Berlin and became a, a professor in, uh, in, uh, in, in the United States. Um, and, and he very much had, had this idea of this talented 10th and this educated elite who could raise the uh, Afro-American population and then at the end they would, would gain uh, equality. So, so, so I, I would say what, what was typical or, or characteristic was, was this tension between the white majority and this Afro-American uh, large mi minority and also the way how, how uh, well, in, in terms of middle class, how this tension or, 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 or this development was also mirrored within the respective middle classes. And, um, and also competition, as you said in Tulsa, I mean, it's yeah. not something that the white were very famous. Like, oh, how great we have American, uh, Afro-American competitors, how mm -hmm. great we, we can go, but, but actually not, this, this was, is probably, the tragedy mm. of, of the United States that these things are so important that until today we have this ever uh, mm. existing tension between, between mm -hmm. whites and uh, whites, whites and blacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, so th th this question is is actually just out of curiosity, and I know I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be I, I could be wrong because. The question came to my mind when I was reading your book, which is about the, the, the role of middle classes and democracy in Europe. And that was specifically about France, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, the middle class, like I said, I could be wrong because I read that article some time ago. When it comes to the, to the middle classes and working classes, middle classes generally hampered the progress of, let's say, democratic institutions to give the working class people more rights, to give them more privileges. So in general, do you think that middle classes have helped progress the cause of democracy for all the people in their societies or they generally hampered the progress of democracy? Both. Mm -hmm. Well, on, on, on the one hand, I mean, there, there are a lot of middle class um, intellectuals who said, well, we have, we have to have universal rights. So, um, and, and also, I mean, this is also the, this bourgeois ideology. So everybody should be like us. Everybody should be civilized, educated, and we have to make sure that everybody can read and write and have good table manners and so on. But at, at the same time, they, they, they do not want that everybody is the same because they're also uh, the working classes or also, also uh, people from rural areas. They're also political competitors, uh, also economic uh, competitors. So, so therefore, they do not really, or also very critical if they get too strong working working classes, well, make too many claims. And you can see this in, in terms of political crisis, such as in the interwar period in, in Europe, when fascism and national socialism in Germany was supported by to, to a large extent, by, 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 by people from this very group, from the middle class, from the petit bourgeoisie, also from the large, uh, the upper bourgeoisie, because they feared communism, feared the working class, and said, "Well, it's 
better to have an authoritarian ruler who makes uh, well, uh, deals somehow with, 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 with all these socialists before we, 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 we become uh, a, a communist country. And, and then the democracy doesn't really play a role. So this is something that one, one can make, make with that. I mean, there are also a lot, lot, lot of people from the bourgeoisie who, who, who opposed this, this, uh, this, this fascist regimes, but also a lot of, uh, of, of people from this group who uh, welcomed it. And you can see similar developments in Latin America after the Second World War, also before that, all these uh, military coups which were supported by the bourgeoisie because they feared the peasants and they feared the, the workers. Uh, and uh, let's talk about the role of states, governments in the formation of middle classes. So the book the, the book has several, uh, let's say, parts. The first part is state and class. And the first article that is about Iran, which is my home country, where uh, before the Second World War, so the government, uh, sorry, after the Second World War, the government uh, Pouring a lot of money into those into government institutions, and that was maybe the origin of uh, of a burgeoning middle class in Iran in that time. So, in general, what was because the the states the state also relied on on those middle classes to perform different roles for them. In general, what was the role of states in the formation of uh, middle classes? I would say it was rather important. I mean, this was the case in in in, in Europe, where, where all these political uh, reforms relied on a strong middle class somehow. So it, it was was clear that uh, you you cannot have a, a nation state without having school teachers, without having merchants, with, with without having uh, bureaucrats, um, and. Well, in Iran, also in Japan, I mean, they're the rulers, they reacted somehow to European expansion. I mean, the, the, the Shah saw, okay, this is a problem for us. If, if we have not, if we do not want, want, want to become a colony, we somehow have to deal with this European challenge. And then they, they uh, established a lot of institutions, universities, schools, sent people to Europe to somehow learn how they could adapt these new ways of knowledge, new technologies, and, and so on. And similar in, in Japan, obviously, with the Meiji Restoration, this was precisely what, what, what they did, and very successfully so. And you can see the, the importance of state also in cases where uh, the middle classes or this transformation into a liberal society, or however you would call it, failed, such as in Russia uh, after the... the the Russian Revolution in 1917, or in China um, in the Civil War in the interwar period, and then with the rise of uh, of, uh, of of communism. I mean, if if there were no stable uh, political institutions, or if the government wanted to get rid of these middle classes, I mean, there, this this was just the end. I mean, in in China, the whatever was there of this was a very small fraction of, of society basically just in uh, cities such, such as Shanghai this 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 emerging Chinese bourgeoisie but still what, what whatever traces there were this this was just uh, well uh, destroyed by, by the communists after the the founding of, of the People's Republic so therefore the, the state is is, 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 is very important mm-hmm. And uh, as a last question, maybe another part of the book is uh, part four of the book is religion and the betterment of the world. And you have an article called From Global Civilizing Missions to Racial Warfare, Class Conflicts and the Representation of the Colonial World in the European Middle Class 
thought. So uh, I guess this is your area of expertise now. <laughs> so can you talk about maybe the role of these philanthropic societies in, in reinforcing a civilized image of European bourgeoisie? Yeah, well, what, what they actually want, want, want you to do is civilize the primitives. And the primitives they found, on the one hand, in the urban slums, so there were a lot of these uh, uh, lumpen proletarians, so, so uh, a lot of wise, a lot of drunkenness, and they thought, well, somehow we have to deal with these people, we have to educate them, civilize them, uh, make uh, programs, so such as the Salvation or, or Army was, was, was one of these, these movements. And at the same time, they were, they were also looking at the non-European world and saying, okay, there are similar primitives in Africa, and we have similar problems also with alcohol and also with sexuality and nakedness, and it's very, it's not the way we would, would like to have, so we have to educate them, religion plays a role, so if, if they have, if they believe in, in God and have a, a small family, a core family, and 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 have, have a, a regular income and also a, a steady gender relation, then everything will be good. And what they did, they compared it to and said, oh, well, in, in the London West End, this looks like Africa. This is this is the urban jungle and it's very much like the, 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 the jungle in Africa. And they had similar programs of, of uh, civilizing them. And what was interesting then, this, this is in the second part of my article, so that same similar comparisons were also made after the late 19th century by right-wing uh, uh, and, and, and very racist uh, intellectuals such as um, Madison Grant or, 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 or Oswald Spengler who, who were saying, well, now we have a problem because the, the, these uh, primitives, uh, so if, if you want to say so, they become too successful. So the working classes become a threat to the bourgeoisie and also in the colonial world, there's a lot of unrest of protest. So the white bourgeoisie has to make sure that it it, 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 it does, does not be uh, eradicated. So we have to fight these people and, and they really fear it's so a coalition between the, the white socialists and the colored people and had so this vision of a global racial warfare and well, well, well the, the colored people who would uh, invade Europe and and, and, and that, that then the countermeasurements were very aggressive. So this was uh, eugenics and and, 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 and very racist uh, um, politics and also very authoritarian. They're just basically said, well, we have to have strong leaderships, masculinity and all these things to deal with the threat of these, of the masses because the ma masses are a problem. It, it are always a problem for, for, for the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie is the minority and the masses are the uncivilized people they somehow have to deal with, educate with, and democracy therefore becomes a problem because when the masses become too powerful, then the bourgeoisie fears about its, its position. So it's very much about this ambiguity. So it's 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 a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's basically what, what characterizes this, this bourgeoisie. It's always ambiguous. They always have very great ideals and in the reality, it becomes very messy. And speaking about this civilizing uh, mission, I was reminded of uh, this temperance movement in England, where they felt that the, the, the working class is too coarse and uncouth. So they had tea parties. They, I read somewhere there was this article that they organized large, large, massive tea parties. They invited people. They made them drink tea and stuff, alcohol. They started preaching about religion to create this, let's say, uh, civilized, let's say, society there and it was interesting in that article that you make the point that your know, european bourgeoisie considered uh let's say the 
both people in Europe were not in the same class as primitive in the same way that they considered non-Europeans, maybe in Africa or in, in, in India, in the same way as as in the same way as their own European counterpart as primitive, uneducated, and uncouth. Hmm. Professor Deang, thank you very much for your uh, time and talking about this book. This is a wonderful book, and I strongly encourage our listeners to pick up the book, read the introduction. There are lots of fascinating articles uh, from all over the world uh, with a lot of experts writing about the emerging middle classes across the globe. Thank you very much for your time. Yes, th thank you. It was a great experience to be here. <laughs> thank you.